Let's take our Bibles, church family, and let's head for the Gospel of John, part of our ongoing study series. John chapter 5 this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We'll try to put one in your hands. Grab the little note page from your bulletin. Looks like this. You're going to want that, I think, along the way. And if I could please ask you to silence that cell phone if it hasn't happened for you. Let's get that, let's get that taken care of. I had an interesting conversation this week on the phone with an elderly lady in our church family. She had called me to ask for prayer as she was hoping to engage an unsaved friend in spiritual conversations that might allow her to talk about Jesus. And so she says, Pastor, would you pray for me and pray that I will not miss the Lord's leading in this relationship. I want this lady to know Jesus. And I thought, wow, to be so motivated, that we would all be so motivated. I'd love for my phone to ring off the hook of folks calling and saying, hey, pray for me. I've got, a, I've got an opportunity to share Jesus with somebody. But as part of this conversation, I asked her how she was doing physically. And she said with a chuckle, Well, Tim, I'll tell you, I'm a 35-year-old lady mentally with 35-year-old emotions and desires and aspirations trapped in a 93-year-old body. And it is so frustrating. (laughs) And I hung up the phone thinking, a 35-year-old trapped in a body that won't do what she wants it to do. That would be hard. That would be hard. Now, I'm learning just a tiny little bit about what that's going to be like now at 63, but nothing like this lady at 93. Now, here's the interesting twist to this. When she called me on Tuesday afternoon, I had been immersed in the text here in John's Gospel that comes into view for us today. I'd been there for a couple of hours. And... This whole thing that we're about to share together today, church family, centers on Jesus and a man who is literally trapped in his body, either by disease or a paralyzing injury, with zero hope of things ever getting better for him. He's trapped in a body that won't do what he wants it to do. Now, what would you do? If you suddenly received a paralyzing spinal cord injury in a car accident or a a fall and you were told that you would be in a wheelchair for the rest of your life controlling your movements with a joystick, with a, a withered hand, what would you do? I know it's an impossible, almost impossible request to ask you to immerse yourself into a thought like that. It's very, very difficult but what would you do? Would would you be able to endure that? What emotional battles would, would rage in your mind as you were held captive by your body? How would this change your plans for the future that you had imagined for yourself? What would a sudden disability like this do to your relationships with your, your family, with your friends? How would this change the way you related to God? 
In John chapter 5, we meet a man who was incurably paralyzed and hopelessly resigned to the fact that this is going to be his life until he dies. He had no motorized, no motorized wheelchair, just a straw mat that he laid on in the same place day after day after day, year after year after year. But then Jesus comes along with other ideas and he's going to heal this man. But that church family is really only the beginning of this story. John chapter 5, we pick up the next part of our study in verse 1. Allow me to read. You can follow along in your text. We'll put it up on the screen for you as well. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. We're going to stop right there for just a moment, tease out a little bit of the text, then we'll continue on through the rest of the moment. But let's start with the setting together as you see it there on your note page. In fact, church family, before we do that, let's just remember again what John, the writer of this gospel, is up to as he pens this book. He is cherry picking, if you remember from our very first morning, he is cherry picking moments from Jesus' life so that we as the reader will become convinced of who Jesus is, that we will come to know without any doubt, that Jesus is God. And we will choose to put our faith and our trust in him as our Lord and Savior. That's the goal that John has in writing his book. This miracle serves that good end, showing us more of who Jesus is so that we will believe in him and have life through him. This is going to be now the third of seven miracles that John is going to cherry pick out of Jesus' life. He did maybe thousands of miracles. So this is just the third that John's going to pick out of Jesus' amazing life. And this one is layered with great stuff that you and I can take away and work with. Now, if you were with us last Sunday, Jesus was up north, if you recall, in Galilee, in Cana, at the end of chapter 4. Now, John says that Jesus has once again returned to Jerusalem in the south uh, to attend one of the, the three major holidays that devout Jews observed annually by trekking to the holy city, either Passover or Pentecost or the Feast of Tabernacles. The devout Jews would get down to Jerusalem for those three great festivals. Which one this is? John does not tell us. Near the large entry gate on the north side of the city, there was a spring. 
and some pools known to everybody there as the as Bethesda and Bethesda is the Aramaic word for house of mercy so these are the pools of mercy that lie just outside of the sheep gate on the north side of Jerusalem now just as a, a sidebar Bible critics for centuries said that there was no evidence that these pools existed, proving that the story itself was a fabrication and the Bible was a fairy tale. For centuries, this was, was taught and, and spoken of. But then in 1888, while doing some renovations to St. Anne's Church near the Sheep Gate, workers found one of the pools. And then in 1964, a much larger archaeological dig uncovered not only more of the pools, but even the colonnades at Bethesda. And so this today is is what you will see if you are to go there. If you ever get a chance to tour the Holy Land, and I hope you will have that opportunity at some point, your tour guide is certainly going to take you to this location. Needless to say, When this all was uncovered, the critics ducked for cover. (laughs) And science and archaeology, just know this, church. Science and archaeology is always a friend of the Bible. It's never our enemy. It's always going to be a friend. It will always confirm again and again and again the integrity of the word of God. So John tells us that Jesus makes a deliberate decision to go to these pools. And the scene that confronts him, is heart-wrenching. There are scattered everywhere under the covered colonnades. We would call them today roofed alcoves. There were a great number. John uses the word multitude, leaves it at that. A multitude of people in every imaginable physical condition. Physical suffering, some with diseases, others with disabilities, with birth defects, blind, crippled, paralyzed. The moans and the groans of the helpless and the hopeless would no doubt be rising up constantly around these pools. The smells would have been putrid, diseased and decaying bodies. Jesus steps into something quite honestly more akin to a a pond of misery than a pool of mercy. And among all these laying on the stone pavers around these pools is this man, as the Greek text would indicate, dried up and shriveled. He's in a desperately deplorable condition. He's weak, forlorn, utterly helpless. And we can just imagine this man, limbs atrophied, skin kind of just draped over bone, Sunken, hopeless eyes, large calluses perhaps on his hands or his knuckles or his his elbows as he, he would drag himself across the ground. And he's been like this for how long? 38 years. Perhaps here at this location, all of these years, nearly four decades, his need is very great. Now, apparently he and all of the many, many other physically suffering souls around these pools have gathered in this location because they've been told something, something that whether it is true or not, 
They have come to put their hope in it. Now, you're going to notice, you sharp IBC students of the text, you're going to notice that there is no verse 4 in your ESV Bible, your NIV, your New American Standard Bible, or any of the many other versions that you might be carrying today. Now, if you're carrying a King James Bible, then you have a verse 4. So why is verse 4 missing from most of our texts here this morning, only showing up in our Bibles as a footnote? Why is that? Well, the answer is that verse 4 is not found in the oldest and best ancient manuscripts. There are thousands of Greek manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts, and they're the way that we arrive at our amazingly reliable Greek and Hebrew-English Bibles as these scholars take these texts and they compare one with another with painstaking diligence and, and, and in very complex ways that are beyond me. But the end result is that this textual care produces uh, an ability for these scholars to recognize when a text is early and when it is late when it was written early and when it was written later. So here it seems that somewhere along the way, a scripture copyist long before there were printing presses took an existing marginal note of explanation out of the margin of a manuscript and inserted it into the actual text of his new copy. Verse 7 begs for an explanation. This sixth man says to Jesus, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Well, someone in the distant past, well-intentioned, sought to explain that statement of the stirring of the water with a note in the margin next to the text. But then it got folded into the scripture text by a copyist in a later manuscript that then the King James scholars used and inserted in the text of the King James Version. So verse 4, which is typically a footnote in our Bible, says that the multitude of invalids were waiting for the moving of the water for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now that little bit of information helps give us some backstory for verse 7 where the man says he can't get into the pool in time. So whether this is what really happened, an angel really did come to the pools there and do this, or whether it's just an, an urban legend that desperately sick people grasping for some shred of hope chose to believe, we do not know. We, we don't know that. But since it's missing from the earliest manuscripts and has other marks of being added later, verse 4 is omitted so that we can have in our laps a Bible that is as close to the original as possible. How the pool worked is not essential to the story. That Jesus worked is essential to the story, right? That's what really matters here. 
So step into this guy's world, into his condition. See his useless limbs shriveled, dead weights to him. No wheelchairs, no lifts, no, no special equipment. Confined to a, a thin straw mattress. Unable to move. Dependent on others for every need. Not just his food or water, but hygiene. He's defenseless. He's vulnerable. Feeling miserable. Maybe abandoned long ago by his family he has nobody to help him the text says and committed to what may well have been a completely false hope an urban legend stirring waters and church family he has done this year after year after year for how long again 38 agonizing years And the only prospect before him is more of the same until death finally comes. And it's into this that Jesus walks. And we're not told anything more than that Jesus enters this place. No doubt Jesus must have had to weave in and out and around all of these sick and desperate people lying about the pools on the pavement. Maybe he even had to step over some, that it was a multitude. There's a lot of people here just so he could get to one man in and out and stepping over so he could get to just one. And here, church family, once again, as we see it so often in the scriptures, the mystery and the sovereignty of God comes into view. And we don't want to miss this. There are hundreds, hundreds perhaps, who need what Jesus has to give, right? One gets singled out, just one. Jesus could have with a a wave of his hand cleared that deck of every sick soul. But he doesn't do that. And we ask, why? Why? Well, he could. Why didn't he? I don't know. You wish I did know, but I don't know. (laughs) Other than to say, church family, that to have done so would not have served the larger purposes of God in this moment, as well as simply having Jesus choose to focus his attention on one paralyzed man that serves his purpose in a way that healing everybody else does not you know we so long for the why especially in the face of loss and illness and injustice and pain why god why god i I had a man this last week ask me upon the recent death of his adult son he asked me he was He asked me with tears, why? Why? Why didn't you heal, spare, save, deliver? We want the answer to that question. But rarely do we get that answer. Most often, God simply calls us to do what? Trust him more, right? Trust him more because he knows what's best for us. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's the truth. 
In fact, he would even say, if I told you, you wouldn't get it, right? Even if I told you, you wouldn't get it. Jesus, from a place of sovereign grace, goes straight to this one man, not because he's better than all the rest or because he's done some meritorious thing that somehow attracts Jesus' attention to him. Jesus just intends to touch this one man. Nobody else. That's pure grace, isn't it? That's pure grace. Jesus breaks into his world with an incomprehensible offer. Verse 6, And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Now here John encourages us, I believe, to not miss a couple of insights into Jesus' person, which again I think we could just read right over with if we... If we weren't careful, we would just race right past these thoughts. But John wrote this, if you remember, because he wants us to know the real Jesus. So first, Jesus, let's not miss this. Jesus chooses to go to the pool of misery. He chooses to do that. He's drawn to human need. He's not repelled by human need. He is drawn to it. And John tells us, Jesus saw this man. Don't miss that little word, saw. He saw him. It's a window, I believe, into the compassionate heart of Jesus. He didn't have to be here. This scene did not sneak up on the Lord. He didn't stumble into this moment at the sheep gate. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was going to this pool the same way he went to Samaria to find a woman at a well, the same way that he went to Galilee to engage a desperate official who had a son who was almost ready to die last week, if you remember. Jesus moves toward need. Why did he come into our world? Because we had a need. We needed a Savior. This is his heart. Jesus saw him lying there. Let's not miss that. Second, Jesus didn't need to be told about this man's story. His story of affliction and suffering and how long he had been there. Did you catch that? He knew. He knew. He's God. He knows all things. Jesus knew all about every interminably long day that this man's life had been lived. 38 years. He knew every single day and all that had been a part of the day. He's God. You know, if if you're here today and you're still trying to figure out who Jesus is going to be in your life, it would be good for you to know that he knows you, that he knows you perfectly in this moment. He knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows inside of you and outside of you. All that you have ever felt, all that you have ever thought, all that you have ever done, and all that you will ever do. He knows all about you. There are no secrets with Jesus. None. So if he knows everything there is to know about you and still wants a relationship with you, which he does, he must be a very gracious, very patient, very long-suffering, compassionate, and loving God. Agreed? If he knows all about you and he still wants relationship with you, what a compassionate God he must be. He always moves towards need. 
And because we're all sinners, we all have a great need. Well, Jesus finds this man. He was in his sights from the very beginning, and he extends to him an offer. Do you want to be healed? Now, on the surface of it, Jesus' question seems a little bit strange. Obviously, the man wanted to be made well. He wouldn't have been at the pools, right? He wants to be well. But the question does serve to arrest his attention. It gets him thinking about his need even more. But I would submit to all of us that what's really going on here is that Jesus is actually asking him a double-edged question. Do you want to be healed physically? But more importantly, do you want to be healed spiritually? Jesus is always going to be about spiritual healing first, right? I mean, that's just who he is. Repentance, forgiveness of sin, restored relationship with God. That's first. Physical healing, oh, that's, that's, that can be great. But in the end, we all turn to dirt anyway, right? So that's not the main thing. What do you really want? Physical healing or spiritual healing? Jesus is offering this man both. Do you want to be healed? Well, the man is completely consumed, understandably, by his physical need in this moment. He responds in verse 7, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. All of this man's hope is in what? In the stirring water, right? That's where his hope is. It's in that water. It's in that pool. The pool was everything. If he could only get there in time, right? So church family, here's the rule at the pool. The rule at the pool is the same as it is today. Every man for himself, right? That's the rule at the pool. That's life in a fallen world. Every man for himself. Too bad for you, paralyzed man. Too bad for you. Now, what's interesting is you'll notice that Jesus doesn't even respond to this man's excuse, this reason why he's permanently stuck in this paralyzed state. And I think Jesus doesn't respond to his statement for two reasons. First of all, he is agreeing with the man and the rule that he's just alluded to, though he didn't actually say it that way. Sin does lead to every man for himself, to that scenario. And Jesus would be saying, I understand why you get beat out every time that the water stirs. You do live in a sinful, selfish world. I get it. But Jesus is also silent because he knows, I believe, that the stirring of the water with its healing power, quote unquote, that this man puts all of his hope in and has done so for so long, he knows that this is an empty, powerless myth. It's a legend. The desperate people believe because they need something. They need anything to give them hope. I can't get in the water in time to be healed. Jesus doesn't say, oh my, that's too bad. Boy, if you could only get in the water, how good that would be for you. 
Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say a word about affirming this guy's perception. How sad for this man. Decades of frustration and misplaced hope in the wrong thing. Well, Jesus asks no more questions. He simply chooses to unleash his power in an amazing miracle. Verse 8, verse 9, Get up, take your bed and walk, and at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Jesus' power is immediate, and it is sovereign. Let's not miss this. The words at once are John's way of telling us that Jesus' power is a right now power, and it is effective. When he speaks, diseased muscles and severed nerves obey him. And they obey at once. Can we even begin to imagine, church family, what this man felt and thought and experienced in this moment? 38 years of misery erased in a single instant. Get that. Limbs that dangled like spaghetti suddenly surge with energy and and with feeling and muscles that have not so much as twitched for decades enlarge and pulse with an urgency to want to move and skin that was marred with sores and had that emaciated, washed-out pallor instantly become new and clean and supple. And it all happens at once. And in my mind, I envision this man over the decades having secured a spot that was his spot next to the edge of the, of the pool. And, and yet even that, all of his effort to get close to the pool and have his own little space wasn't enough. Jesus only has to say, get up, get up. Take up your bed and walk out of here. Leave your coveted spot. Can we even imagine? And Jesus says, take your bed to signify you're not coming back here. You're not coming back. Church family, when Jesus heals you, you don't come back. You don't come back to that old place. Aren't you glad for that? When he really heals you, what a moment. What a moment. So totally overwhelming and unexpected for this man that we're told he doesn't even get Jesus' name. He's skipping and jumping and I dare say running out of that pool of misery with his mat stuffed under his arm. And he's shouting and he's singing and he's making all kinds of commotion. The power of Jesus was undeniable. He can do anything. He can do the impossible. Well, I wish I could say that everyone rejoiced at this incredible miracle. But we can't. Verse 9 says, And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. And then John says, Now that day was the Sabbath. (laughs) We're all thinking about how magnificent Jesus is and how blown away and thrilled the healed man must have been. And then John says, oh, it happened on the Sabbath. And we pause and we say, 
uh-oh, now what? Well, a confrontation unfolds. Verse 10. So the Jews, that would be the religious leadership of Judaism, responsible for the spiritual welfare of the nation, the Pharisees and the scribes, they said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Apparently, every very, very quickly after Jesus heals this guy, and he's excitedly coming to terms with his remade body and what it can do, while all of that's going on, Jesus quietly slips out of the Bethesda pools. Now, the reason he does this is because had he not, every invalid in that place would have been clamoring for their own healing miracle, right? I mean, you just know that's where it was going to go. And we ask, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? Well, there's nothing wrong with that, except that it doesn't serve the larger purpose that Jesus has. Had he stayed there after healing one man, there would have been a tumult of miracle seeking. And this was not Jesus' main point. As we said earlier, Jesus is sovereign. One is healed, the multitude is not healed. Jesus is constantly going to be moving towards the cross. That's his goal, isn't it? That's his purpose. That's why he came into the world, to go to the cross. Confronting the religious leadership of the Jewish nation will lead to that way more effectively than healing a mass of sick people. Jesus has a purpose. So he knows what he's done. He's healed a man on the Sabbath and told him to carry his bed as a sign and a celebration that he is whole. Jesus knows that he's going to create a conflict in this moment. Someone has said that conflict in the ministry of Jesus is the furnace where the steel of his identity is forged. In the fires of conflict, his glory is made to shine. I really think that's true. The religious leaders jump all over this bed, roll, toting, hopping, skipping, celebrating 38-year paralyzed man. They jump all over him and let him know he's breaking the religious rules. No work on the Sabbath. Don't you know that? They could care less about the miracle. And that's amazing, isn't it? They, care, they could care less. It's all about the rules. Do the rules and work your way into God's favor. It's about rules. That was the lie that the leaders were teaching the nation. There was no happiness for the crippled man and his new body. No desire to, no desire to find out the source of the power that could transform this guy's life. No, no interest. You broke the rules. That was it. The healed man quickly deflects any intentional wrongdoing away from himself by saying that he was just doing what the healer had told him to do. In fact, he doesn't even know Jesus' name. Well, with nothing more to go on in the moment, the leaders, no doubt, issue a stern, drop that mat and let him go. 
Brothers and sisters, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that you don't live in a rules-based, works-based relationship to God? Aren't you glad for that? How lifeless and miserable would that be? Loved by God and saved by grace, we choose to live our lives in a way that brings God pleasure and glory. Not because we have to, but because we what? We want to. Because we love Him. Jesus died for us. How can we not want to live for Him? All other world religions. Did you know this? All other world religions are works-driven. They're works-driven. Only Christianity offers the freedom and the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. Well, you already know that Jesus would never heal someone physically and not challenge them to the far greater miracle of being healed spiritually. You already know this about Jesus. So if you flip your note page over, Jesus actually tracks this man down. Do not miss this. Don't don't miss this moment. The man doesn't seek Jesus. He doesn't come looking for Jesus. Jesus goes after him a second time. First time was at the pool of Bethesda. Second time is right now in the temple in Jerusalem, verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. You're looking good. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus had no intention ever of walking away from this man and leaving him with nothing more than a healed body. Never. So what's the real offer from Jesus? What's the real offer? I would submit to us that it's himself. It's himself. I healed you. I did that. That was my power at work for you. Now listen to me. Follow me. Hear what I say. Stop living for yourself. Live for God. Sin no more. My aim in healing your body is really the healing of your soul. Getting you turned in a God direction. I've given you a gift. It was free. You didn't earn it. You weren't good enough to deserve it. I chose to give it to you. And I healed you. Now live in that power. Let the gift of healing, the gift of my free grace, be the means for you living for God's glory from now until you see him in heaven. I have healed you to make you holy. I think that's what Jesus was doing. And Jesus warns him that if he turns away now and he mocks this gift or makes an idol out of his health, physical health, and embraces sin as a way of life, he's going to perish. And I take the words, nothing worse may happen to you, nothing worse. I think Jesus is talking about final judgment. I think he's talking about eternity without God. I think he's talking about hell. That's going to be confirmed later on in chapter 5, by the way. There aren't many things in the natural world worse than to be a prisoner in a paralyzed body for 38 years. I can't think of many things that would be worse than that. But there is one thing that would be way, way, way worse than that. And that would be to be separated from God forever in hell with no hope of rescue. 
that's the way worse thing. What do you really want, my friend? I hear Jesus asking that man this question here. Just a physical healing or or the greatest healing of all? A soul made right with God. Jesus says, I can give you that. I can give you that. So how then does this moment wrap up? Verse 15. The man went away and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Let's stop right there for a second. Church family, I, I read that verse and it makes me sad. Does it make you sad? I'm saddened to read this because it sounds like this man is more focused on the religious leaders than he is on what Jesus has just told him. More afraid of them than of Jesus and the truth that he just spoke. However, in the sovereign mystery of God, this does serve Jesus' larger purpose. Verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. Now, church family, when Jesus said this, my father is working and I am working too, that was nothing short of Jesus throwing gasoline on a fire. Truly. He in one sentence gives these leaders everything that they could have hoped for. It's like handing them fresh meat. Verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to what? To kill him, to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This all gets Jesus one step closer to the cross, doesn't it? It's what Jesus wants. Is he in control? He's in total control. And here again, John makes sure that we see the real Jesus. Remember how John opens this gospel way back when we first started our study series, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? Jesus is God, and neither Jesus nor John try to play that down ever. He's God, and that, that's, that's what we all need to know. He's God. He is God. And we can trust Him with our lives and with our eternities. And that's how verse 18 ends, making Himself equal with God. He's God. Oh, there's so much more here, but time is gone. So, so how do we take some of this home with us in some practical ways? A few observations there for us to mull over this week. On your note page, number one, Jesus has the power to take on anything in your life. Anything. Do you believe it, church? Anything? Anything. Well, I'll I'll just ask this question in a group this large. I need to ask this question. Are you perhaps lying in the alcove at the pool of misery today? I mean, I mean, mercy. Mercy. Something in your life paralyzing you? 
an addiction, perhaps? Drugs, prescription, or street? Alcohol, paralyzing you? Pornography, coveting, discontent, stealing, lying, gossip, anger, relationships, fear? Are you feeling paralyzed? Jesus has the power to take anything in your life, anything, and turn it. Do you believe it? It's true. There are all kinds of stories of Jesus doing that in this room. Number two, belief in the wrong things can keep us stuck in false hope for a really long time. Do you believe that? You bet. The man at the pool may have spent 38 years believing a lie, church family, a myth. And so the takeaway is is, is check your belief system for any possible lies or false hopes that have been allowed to creep into it. And just in case you didn't know this, church family, not everything that you read on the Internet is true. (laughs) Right? It's just not. But, But sadly, and the reason I say that, we all chuckle, but the reason I say that is because that is where, that is where our culture gets its truth. And that's where, sadly to say, there are many in the church who are also garnering their their convictions and their opinions about things. Way less time spent in the book, the book where there is truth every time and relying on all this stuff that comes on our laptops and our phones and stuff. Make sure, brothers and sisters, make sure where your hope is anchored. It must always be in Jesus and his word first, yes? All right, number three, rules without relationship produces religion that is both blind and joyless. Boy, how clear that is from this text. The religious leaders could not celebrate a miracle because they were blinded by their religion, by their rules. If you have been led to believe that you must perform in order to gain heaven, and you're weary of trying to do the rules perfectly all the time because all you ever do is fail, 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 just stop. Just stop. God offers you grace, and he offers you healing, and he offers you life through faith in Jesus Christ. You don't earn that. It's free. It's free. Do relationship with God through faith in Jesus and discover that you will then be able to do everything that God wants you to do in his power. Number four, Jesus will always be about spiritual healing more than physical healing alone. Jesus wants our hearts, right? He wants our hearts. These bodies are temporary tents at best, and they will inevitably wear out and turn to dirt, right? Even the most fit person in this room is going to turn to dirt physically. If we're called upon to live with physical afflictions to be, whether they're mild or whether they're severe, short-term or long-term, If they grow our faith, 
and they strengthen our reliance upon God. Better to be physically ill or sick than to be physically well and not growing in relationship to Jesus. True? True. Jesus says, my power is made perfect in weakness. The Apostle Paul will say, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power might rest on me. Let's not allow our physical weakness to make us bitter, but make us better. Lastly, Jesus is God. Got it? Good. Let's pray. You are God, Lord Jesus. You are God, mighty God. Before time and eternity, you are God, and you are in control of all things. And in this moment, we just see that so clear. Thank you for giving us a fresh view of you, Lord Jesus, here at the pool of mercy. In this room right now, Heavenly Father, you're looking into every heart and you know, you know everything. Lord Jesus, you know everything. You know what's there. You know what we're doing. You know what we're thinking. You know what our practices and actions are. You know what we're thinking about doing. Lord, you know in this moment those who are paralyzed by whatever, you know. My prayer for my friends in this room is that we would be liberated from these paralyzing places by your power, by your grace, by your mercy, freed to be able to live for you, to live wholeheartedly sold out for you. And if there's anybody in this room who doesn't know Jesus yet, in that way that we've been talking about, a personal relationship with the living God, today's the day, now's the time. Don't leave today without knowing who Jesus is in your life. We praise you and we thank you for your word, Lord. May we live it, not just be hearers, but doers, all for your glory. And God's people said, amen and amen. Let's stand together, church family, and sing.